Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and presson falsies. You're listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.wordpress.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Luke's English Podcast. In this one, my parents are um, here in Paris visiting for the weekend. And so I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to uh, sit down with my dad for about an hour and interview him and just um, answer various questions which you, the listeners, have sent in to Luke's English Podcast via the Facebook uh, page. Now, I'll go into that in a moment. But, uh, Dad, are you having a nice weekend here? Bonjour, Luke. Yes, Bonjour. I'm having a very good time. Thank you very much. We've uh, we've been along the uh, left bank of the River Seine. We've been to uh, Notre Dame, and uh, the weather's nice, and it's really great to be here in Paris. Um, can I just ask you, actually, Dad, whereabouts you come from? Where do you come from in the UK, exactly? Well, I was born in the city of Leeds, mm-hmm. which is in the north of England. It's in the big county of Yorkshire. and uh, But I was brought up uh, in my... Uh, teenage years in South London. Um, so I'm uh, originally from Yorkshire, uh, but I was brought up in London. Okay. Do you have an accent? No, I don't really. I mean, I, I when I was little, I did have a Yorkshire accent. It's quite a strong accent. What does it sound like? Uh, it's got flat vowels. It's, it's uh, you know, okay, up north, uh, and the vowels are all flat. That's right. I've heard that sort of in the I can't do a Yorkshire accent. It's very difficult to do a Yorkshire accent, even though I'm trying to. Uh, I mean, it, it turns out to be more like Liverpool, which is completely different. I'm, but uh, I did have an accent, whatever it's like, uh, when I was at school. And, of course, I got teased when I moved to South London because it was a strong accent. And that soon got rid of it. It's interesting, that thing about uh, Yorkshire accent having flat vowel sounds. If you know anything about phonetics, you'll know that there are sort of two types of vowel sounds. You've got single vowel sounds or monothongs, and then double vowel sounds, diphthongs. So diphthongs are things like owl, ear, things like that. Yeah, the vowel changes its quality as you say it. Two vowels, ear or owl, things like that. I heard a theory that in some parts of the north of England... There aren't so many diphthongs. That's what you mean by flat vowel sounds. That's exactly what I mean, yes. So in in Yorkshire, it's particularly pronounced that you don't move your mouth as you say a vowel. It stays the same. For example, um, uh, you know, we say bath in the north as opposed to bath. And we say path as opposed to a path. But also, if you say in the south of England, you say right as opposed to Right, okay. Mm. Right is changing, as you say it. Right. It's a diphthong, I, right. right. But in Yorkshire, they'll, they'll say right, and it right. will change. Right. So it's not I, but ah, uh, right. Interesting, that. Very interesting. The bath and bath thing is not so much a diphthong, more just short vowel sound and a long vowel sound. Yes. Bath, bath. I've talked about that before. It's a, it's a distinction between north and south of England. That uh, those two sounds. Anyway, um, on Luke's English podcast, the Facebook page yesterday, 
I um, I wrote this status update inviting my listeners to uh, ask questions, which I would then pose to my dad, Rick. And uh, the status update uh, goes like this. Um, Hello, listeners. I'm with my dad this weekend. And tomorrow I'm going to ask him for uh, I'm going to interview him for the podcast. Would you like to ask him some questions? Please add your questions for my dad here. His knowledge is encyclopedic, but slightly unreliable. So he's like Wikipedia, but I call him Rickipedia because his name is Rick. So please send us your questions for Rickipedia. And um, as we stand now um, on Sunday, there are 30 uh, questions here. And we're not going to be able to deal with all of them. In fact, after about the first 15 questions, I did write a comment saying, that's it, we've had enough questions, please stop. But the questions kept rolling in. In fact, they're still coming in now um, as we do this. So um, we're not going to be able to deal with every single question, I'm afraid. But let's try and get through as many as we can in about an hour. Okay, I'll try and answer as concisely as I can. And um, yes, Wikipedia is entirely unreliable. Really? Okay, so um, uh, uh, the other viewpoints are available, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. First question is from a listener called Hai Tuan. I think that's how to pronounce your name. Can I just say, actually, at the beginning of this episode, that uh, it's very difficult for me to pronounce everybody's names correctly. So um, I'll probably end up pronouncing your names all completely wrong. And I hope you find that funny rather than just outright offensive okay so just bear in mind i don't necessarily know how to pronounce your names but i'm going to try i'm going to do my best so the first one hi tuan and hi tuan begins the the message by calling you sir oh well that's very nice of you hi tuan um uh, i'm not haven't been knighted sir sir rick uh, the mm. queen has not invited me to buckingham palace to lay the ceremonial sword on my shoulders but i don't mind being called sir it's very respectful thank you very much do we actually do we call people sir not anything? so much now no no we don't i mean some some shopkeepers or or people in restaurants might say sir but it's pretty old fashioned now and uh, and i think that you know it's falling out of use people don't really say it anymore except as you said in shops or restaurants um, like uh, sales staff or sales assistants. Even that is it's it's not so common as it was because when someone comes up to you in the shop and says, oh, "Hello, can I help you, sir?" It has that kind of oily thing about it, mm. and um, you know I think that people are tending to avoid it now. So it's not very common to say "sir" anymore, unlike in France where people call you "Monsieur" all the time, indeed, which is uh, very polite and all that kind of thing. Um, right. So Hi Tuan says, "Sir." What's the difference between the UK today and the UK 30 years ago? A massive question, uh, which you now have to try and deal with in just a few minutes. So uh, what's the difference between the UK now and the UK 30 years ago? That question received five likes. So not only does Hai Tuan want to know this, but uh, five other people are interested in your response to that. Well, I can just think of a few things, uh, just to be brief. The first thing, of course, is that the UK today is 30 years older than it was 30 years ago. <laughs> but, it, the, the, but in the early 80s, um, there was a different atmosphere. There was a lot of tension mm-hmm. arising from the Cold War. Um, and uh, there was a confrontation with uh, the Eastern Bloc. 
and of course the the so-called Iron Curtain was still there, and uh, there was a lot of anxiety about you know nuclear missiles being moved into the UK from America, nuclear missiles being moved west of the Urals by the Russians, and all that tension was really quite a, an anxious period. Cold War, mm. Cold War. Now um, it's a, it's a much more relaxed international scene across the whole of Europe. I'm glad to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the tensions are all about economics. We've had a terrible financial collapse. So now everybody is suffering in one way or another from the fact that the banks, you know, had this terrible explosion and, and didn't uh, lend enough money. So the, the, there's two things. One is international tension has been replaced by a sort of economic difficulty. Uh, the other thing, of course, is if you look back 30 years, what an ama- amazing change everywhere. The, the computer, the personal computer, was only just appearing. Mm. Uh, and um, even in, in the workplace, uh, it was quite a new thing in the early 80s to have a computer on your desk. And uh, we, we now take it entirely for granted that, you know, we have... Uh, the computer chips are in absolutely everything. But it's only 30 years, you know, since it really started to happen. I can remember the first time I had... Uh, I saw a digital watch... Really? I can remember the first time I put a, a calculator in my hand because I had to have one at work at the BBC tell to me, work out the timings of the programme. Tell me about the digital watch. Um, that probably was in the 80s. Like the uh, 70s, 80s. I would think. Really? I would guess. But, uh, but um, you know, I remember when they suddenly appeared, digital watches. Wow. What did you think of your first... Well, you didn't buy one, I think. I, just... I've never liked them, but I'm, I'm very unusual. Lots and lots of people had digital watches. What did you think of digital watches when they first arrived? And I thought they were ugly and I didn't like them. Yeah. But the, the reason for that is that I think that the watch with hands on a dial is a brilliant, brilliant design concept. Mm. If you think about it, how you glance at it and you know what the time is, it's absolutely incredible uh, bit of brilliance. But whoever whoever first thought of a clock face. You say that, and then, but... then the digital watch seems to be to be a joint leap backwards where it gives you figures to tell you what the time is. And I just felt that that was a little bit boring. But wait a minute, um, you say that it's very easy to to read a digital uh, read a, uh, an old fashioned uh, watch with hands. But I remember having to learn how to read uh, one of those watches. And for example, my well, not my students at school, but uh, children have to, they take quite a long time to learn that the little hand means the hour and the big hand is the, 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 the minutes. And that's actually well, a bit I complex. suppose so. I had never thought of that. But, but uh, anyway, that, I've, that's, I've told you that the, the little computers mm. that changed everything, of course, were just happening in, the, in uh, 30 years ago. And the only other thing about Britain itself is, of course, that the population's increased quite a lot in the last 30 years, mainly through immigration. And, and uh, it feels that more... It's a more crowded place in the big cities, but also it's incredibly multicultural country mm. now. Mm. I mean, London isn't the only city where there are so many languages being spoken on the on the trains or on the, on the tube in London mm. or on the street. And um, the latest census, where we, we have a census every 10 years, and the census of 2011, uh, shows this, shows that um, in some of the big cities... Uh, only half the people who lived there were actually born in Britain. Really? And um, I, th- I think it's, it's a particular characteristic of Britain now that it is phenomenally multicultural. One of the newspaper headlines said, We are the world. Mm. And I actually think that's rather neat. Um, and, and certainly the, there aren't very serious ethnic tensions 
the very you know localized minor little problems, but nothing serious at all. People get on with each other really well. I think everyone's accepted that the UK is a fantastically multicultural country. Mm. The the the, the uh, rare occurrences of racial uh, tension are you are often done by sort of individuals and. You, for example, you see these viral videos of someone on a bus who's who's kind of lost their temper and started shouting at, in a racist way. But they, they're always considered to be complete idiots. Yes, they and are. We, we have, they're in a we very have, small minority. We have groups like the EDF, the English Defence, uh, EDL, English Defence League. EDF is a is an electricity company in France. <laughs> EDL, electric uh, English Defence League, and they're a sort of English national nationalist group. Um, but they're sort of like stupid idiots. Really. They are. They're, they are of a type. They're all ill-educated, and uh, they're very small in number. And um, fortunately, they don't have any significance. I hope that the um, EDL don't now come looking for me because I know that they have baseball bats <laughs> and cricket bats and things. But uh, yes, that's their I, method of persuasion. But I know, I know, you know, special kung fu techniques. So if they do, I'll just hadouken. I'll just do a hadouken. <laughs> And it won't be a problem. So the the UK has changed quite a lot. Uh, it's a lot more populated, and we've got you know computers and the internet, of course, now. So, yeah, things are changing really rapidly. Um, Andre um, is the next question. Uh, Andre has written the next question, and it says, "What does it feel like to be British these days?" Um, and sort of related to the previous one, how does it feel to be British? Well, gosh, I can't speak for the other 62 million people who live in Britain, Andre. I mean, I can just tell you my personal view is that I've always quite liked living in Britain and I've travelled around the world quite a lot and I've uh, always been very happy to come home. I like all sorts of things about Britain. And I think, um, uh, I mean, most people feel quite comfortable about being British. There is a movement at the moment which is a bit hostile to the European Union. Because people think that the the EU has in some ways got too big and too powerful, and and uh, it's, it's Britain is probably the most Eurosceptic country of the twenty seven, soon to be twenty eight members of the EU, yeah. uh, and it's a general feeling. But I don't think it's um, anything other than a kind of an intellectual debate. I mean, I think that people wonder whether it's uh, it, the EU should be reformed so that this is less bureaucratic and maybe a little bit less wasteful. And this is a perfectly intelligent debate. And I don't think that there is any anxiety about people feeling un-British because they're in the EU. I think that basically it's just a kind of technical debate about what's best for the country. Yeah, yeah, OK. Um, so next question is from Bruno Alves. And this is a question about football. So... If you're into football, listen closely. If you're if you're not into football, don't worry about it because th- we're only going to talk about it for a couple of minutes. And who knows, you might learn something about football, and then you can kind of impress people by saying, "Oh well, I know that uh, Lionel Messi um, didn't score a goal in the latest game, which was a huge surprise." You know, you can sort of wax lyrical about football. But the question is, Dad, um, which team is going to win the UEFA Champions League this season? Well, I think, as we're recording this, I think we're down to the semi-final stage, only four teams left. Um, Wait a minute, what are those four teams? I can't remember. Barcelona. Barcelona. um, Real Madrid. Real Madrid, I think. Certainly Bayern Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich and someone else. I don't know. I'm sorry. Isn't that terrible? There are no British teams left in it. All I I can say is that that a few years ago, I was at a a conference in, uh, in Barcelona, 
And I was fortunate enough to meet a guy who, who worked for, uh, he was a senior man in Icelandic television. And we fell into conversation and he said that his TV station had the rights to the Champion League and therefore he had VIP tickets for the game that was coming up the next evening. Would I like to join him at the New Camp Stadium in Barcelona? I said, yes, please. So I went to this stadium and it was Barcelona versus Bayern Munich in this incredible stadium, 80,000 people, huge noise. Mm. And um, I felt rather sorry for Bayern Munich having to play in this atmosphere. But they were brilliant. They were very, very cool. They won 3-1. Nobody scored three goals in this stadium for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And I was always I was impressed with Bayern Munich. And I've always kept an eye on them since then. And they seem to be a very, very cool team. They're not kind of starstruck. They don't have any extravagantly ridiculous players. And they just uh, they play very, very well. And I think that if I had to bet on who would win the Champions League, I'd go for Bayern Munich. Okay. Cool, calm, collected, cool, well-organised German efficiency. But they've also win. got a lot of flair, but they, they do they don't seem to be affected by the atmosphere. Okay, right. Let's let's see what happens. Um, we'll see if uh, Rick Thompson's uh, prediction of a German victory this year will come true. Uh, you, I wonder if maybe you can win some money. You should put some money on it, Dad. Do you, I don't feel that confident. Are you a gambling man? <laughs> I'm not. No. 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 I think uh, gambling is for losers, really. Okay. Except when you win, um, and then it's. Uh, Right, <laughs> shall I move on to the next question? Um, all right, Stefano uh, Pierini, who I expect is from Italy, but I'm not sure. He says, I'd like to know what he thinks about Eastern Europe, especially the southeastern part, for example, Serbia and bordering states, because I know he worked there uh, sometimes. He works there sometimes. You do work in Serbia occasionally, don't you, Dad? Yes, I do. I mean, uh, I worked for BBC News for a long time, and now I do training and development work in broadcasting and broadcast journalism in in parts of Europe that that you know people feel they need some some advice and some help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have done a long project in in Serbia. I've been going there. Uh, occasionally with some colleagues to do some training and and other work in radio and television uh, over the past six years. And I've also done some work in in other parts of Southeast Europe, in in Croatia and in uh, in Kosovo, in, um, uh, where else, Slovenia. Um, And and so I I do like that part of the world very much. I think from the perspective of people living in the UK, they don't know much about it. I mean, I think they're pretty ignorant about it. Yeah. And they're also, I think there's a bad stereotyping for the Balkans. People say, oh, you're going to Serbia, Rick, is it safe? <laughs> well, you know, of course it is. It's a gorgeous country and it's beautiful and, and some really, really nice people. And all I can say is that I think that if they, if that part of the world continues to make the right kind of progress, it's all based on rule of law, um, where they are, they've suffered terribly from corruption corrupt business people, kind of, you know, mafia kind of stuff, mm. and corrupt politicians. And uh, I think that it's improving. And uh, if, uh, if they can establish rule of law so they have a fair society for people, that's the first point. Mm. And, and uh, it's got great potential. Croatia is going to join the EU on the 1st of July, become the 28th member state. And it's a, of course, a lot of people know that Croatia is beautiful and it's got a great coastline down the Adriatic. Yes. But I think it's also got a lot of other potential. So um, I think the whole region um, has got the potential to grow and it just needs to 
face up with some determination to the fact that society has to be fair based on rule of law. So it's a sort of slightly misunderstood region, but it has a lot to offer. And uh, as long as they can put their uh, slightly difficult past behind them and sort of bring a lot of things to Europe, it's going it, they, they could... Um, you know, bring so many things. They have so much to offer. Yes, I agree. Um, it's a good holiday destination, isn't it, that part of the world? It certainly is, and and not terribly expensive. And uh, Croatia is known because of its coastline for its holiday uh, potential. But there's other spots that are gorgeous. In northern Serbia, Novi Sad is a beautiful place, mm. and they have this big um, exit pop festival every year in July. Yeah. The exit pop festival is sensational. Exit, wait, the exit it's called pop Exit festival. Pop Festival, yeah. The um, Exit Pop Festival. Any, it attracts thousands and thousands of people. Any any big bands play? Yeah, they they sound. I don't know who's playing this year. You can look it up online. Um, but uh, Novi Sad in northern Serbia is a beautiful place to go yeah. to. You can go to Mostar in Bosnia. I mean, there's all sorts of really interesting places to visit mm. in that part of the world. And now, thanks to uh, Rick Thompson, if you watch uh, you know the news on TV, it's probably a little bit better than it was before. <laughs> Mainly thanks to Rick Thompson. So that's what the that's what the Thompson family does, isn't it? We save the world through broadcasting. <laughs> well, they certainly have improved the quality of the broadcast news in the last few years. It's not entirely due to me, but uh, but it's uh, it's certainly improving. That, by the way, my dad works in um, sort of journalist training for journalists in television and radio broadcasting, and he's been working in in Serbia and some other places, uh, helping them out there. So good job, well done, Dad. You're sort of uh, doing a very good thing. So, next question is from Hiroshi Maruyama, who's from Japan. Do you speak any Japanese, Dad? Um, I remember Arigato Gozaimasu, is that right? Hi, thank ari- you very much. Arigato Gozaimasu. Arigato Gozaimasu. Gozaimasu, which is like the full version. But then you've got the, the, the shorter, more uh, informal version. For example, if, you've, if you're slightly drunk, on a Friday night, and you've been eating ramen in a ramen noodle shop in Japan, in Tokyo, that you don't have to do the arigato gozaimasu. You don't have to do the whole thing. You can just do the quick version, which is uh, azamas, which is just azamas, even just which is the super short version. So if next time you eat ramen in a in a Tokyo noodle uh, bar, Dad, that's how you should uh, say I'll, thank I'll you. Practice. By the way, asas means uh, thank you. Thanks. Ta. Cheers. It's like saying that in in Japanese. Anyway, this isn't this is not Luke's Japanese podcast. It's not like a Luke no Nihongo no podcasto. It's not like that. It's just Luke's English podcast. So the the question that Hiroshi has is why did you, Rick? Uh, get the good idea to present a drum kit to your sons uh, for Christmas, um, you know, many years ago. Well, he's very well informed, isn't he? He's been listening to Luke's English podcast, um, and he knows that, uh, for example, I think it was back in 1990 or 1991, you and mum decided that for Christmas you would buy us a drum kit. Now, for listeners, if you don't know what a drum kit is, it's a musical instrument. You know, that's a drum kit. That's the sound of a drum kit, anyway. Um, And my parents bought, my brother and me, a drum kit uh, for Christmas. And that led to us becoming 
massive billion pound earning rock stars. <laughs> well, they it, do it, both it, play drums very well, that's for sure. We didn't become rock stars, but we did learn how to play the drums and we uh, have always enjoyed playing music ever since. So wh- why did you buy us a drum kit? Well, I when I was a little boy, um, my parents were quite musical and we used to play music together, sitting around the piano, and I, I used to hit tin cans and things with knitting needles really? uh, as a, a little drummer when I was small. And then when I was at school, I started playing drums, and I played drums in bands in South London, um, you know, before I went to university. And uh, everybody did in those days. Wait a minute, what kind of bands did you play in? Well, they were pop music bands, pop rock bands. This is like the mid-60s. We're talking, we're talking yeah, we're talking 63, 64, around mm. that time. Old... Everybody was in a band in those days, and you played things like, you know, pop music. You, you played some American Chuck Berry things. Make people dance, but yeah. you also played the Hollies, and you played uh, early record by the Who, you know, a bit of Beatles in there, and, maybe? and uh, yeah, maybe a bit of Beatles even, yes. Yeah. Um, so everybody, you know, uh, tried to pick up a guitar and play in those days, and I did play a bit of guitar, but I also played drums. Anyway, so um, we went on this holiday, if you remember, Luke, uh, to California. I do remember. Big, yeah. big holiday. Go to California. Fantastic. It's great. And uh, there was a friend of mine who lived there, and we stayed with him for a night or two, and he had a drum kit in mm. his garage. It certainly and did. And you two sat down and started showing that you had natural talent for this. You spent a bit of time in the garage with his drum kit. Yeah. And we thought, hello, we ought to get them one. Unfortunately... Um, we were living in a house which had a, a little little outbuilding in the garden. It was like a garage which was not separate. A garage which was not connected to the house. It was once a time on a time a garage, but but we used it as their kind of play area where like they, a, they could hang out, kind of garden house yes. kind of thing. So it was, and there weren't any other houses very close to it. So it was okay if they wanted to play drums and play a bit of music in there it wasn't going to disturb anybody so we had a space in the garden where there was a little house that uh, was big enough to fit a drum kit in it and so mum and dad decided well they could we could put a drum kit in the garden house that's right and and, uh, it didn't disturb uh, our neighbors too much and um, that's what we did and we it wasn't a new one because these things can be extremely expensive so we got a second hand drum kit which was actually quite a nice one and um and that's what happened Okay, right, well, thanks. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you both play drums so well. And well, listeners, they do. I was extremely... Uh, I was just over the moon to get that drum kit, and uh, I then played it for about one hour every day, uh, which is just a, a, a privilege. Right, next one is from... No, uh, wait a minute. Hiroshi has actually got a few questions. But he's Isn't a, that cheating? Well, it Hiroshi. is just cheating. It's meant to be just one question, but it's Hiroshi, so, you know, we'll let him off. Okay, um, quick. The next question is, have you, do, you, uh, do you, or have you ever had Tetrisitis? Um, tetrisitis, of course, is what happens when you play Tetris for a long time, and when you stop playing, you close your eyes, you can still see the Tetris blocks falling in front of your vision. So, do you, have you ever had Tetrisitis? Well, I certainly did. When... when um, when there was a Game Boy in the house, I certainly did start playing a bit of Tetris. And it is a bit addictive, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, after a while, I, I, I don't think I exact, exactly... I, I had to go to Tetris Anonymous, of course. Mm, really? And you have to sit around in a circle and stand up and say, 
Yeah, my name is Rick Thompson, and I'm a Tetris addict. I'm a Tetraholic. Uh, no, that's not true, all that. The, 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 the fact is that um, every now and then, though, you would wake up at four o'clock in the morning with the Tetris music going round and round in your head. How's, how's it go? And then the other one, the other one. And this can be really terrible. Really, really terrible feeling. So you don't want to get tetracitis. If you find you're getting it, go and get professional treatment. Go, go to the uh, go to the doctor. Not Dr. Mario, though. He's not a real doctor, ladies and gentlemen. Right, so, yeah, you have suffered from tetrasitis, as most of us have, uh, uh, you know, if we play Tetris. So, um, and, and, all right, final question from Hiroshi, and that's about bird watching. Um, um, now, some people in some countries think that it's a bit ridiculous that us British people enjoy looking at birds in, in the wildlife, you know, in the countryside. We like to go out in the countryside with some binoculars and sort of, you know, find some wild birds and have a look. And go, oh, look, what's that? That's an eagle. Oh, my God, it's big. Oh, scary. Or, or uh, what's that one? Oh, it's, it's beautiful. That's an avocet, you know, and you tick it off your list of birds, right? You like bird watching. Why? <laughs> well, I, I think it's, uh, it's fairly obvious. I'm not the only one. Um, Obviously, British people are known to like wildlife very much. Uh, our Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has more than one million members. Oh. But uh, there are different kinds of bird watchers. Some, some of them do get a bit obsessive and they have to go and see rare birds to tick them off on their list so they've seen more than anybody else. Well, they're a kind of minority. They're called twitchers. I'm not quite sure why they're called twitchers, but they just are. Yeah. Anyway, most most people are just really bird watchers because they like knowing what's going on around them. They observe them. And, and the more you find out about birds and the more you know about what they look like and what they sound like and how they behave, the more interesting they become. Mm. And and I think that in, in the old days, um, in, you know, 200 years ago, uh, and certainly in medieval times, or in Shakespeare's time, everybody was very much connected with nature. Yeah. They knew everything about the birds and the plants and the seasons. They felt connected with the seasons. And now we, we live in, 80% of us live in big cities, and we are disconnected from nature. I think it's a great pity, that. Mm. And I think it's nice to be able to hear a, a bird at this time of year in the spring singing and know what it is and know something about it. Mm. Uh, so that's why I advocate people to find out a little bit about birds, take a notice of them, have a look at them, what are they doing, and see if you can identify them. Usually they're just flying around, aren't they? Or just Always doing pecking, something interesting. Pecking things. But no, they are beautiful. I love bird watching too. And if you have a good look, not... I mean, see, a lot of people, when you say birds, they just think pigeons, don't they? You know, I don't like birds, but they mean that they don't like pigeons or, you know seagulls or something but there are so many more birds and they're often very beautiful beautiful plumage and uh, they sing nicely as well brilliantly i was listening to a blackbird quite a common bird a blackbird singing um in our garden just before we came here unbelievably beautiful blackbird that's not a crow because everyone always thinks that a blackbird is a crow crows are large birds that are black and they go gah, 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 like that but a blackbird is like uh, from that paul mccartney song blackbird indeed how does the blackbird song go oh dear i can't 
it, it, it is very, very lazy and fluent. Okay. Sounds it a bit like these, me. There's these phrases which you could do, 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 and then it finishes with a very sharp bit at the end, a kind of little, little extra bit, and every phrase is different every time it does it. It never repeats anything. So the blackbird has this fluent, lazy sound. Wow. Okay. So listen out, ladies and gentlemen, next time you're in the countryside. Listen to the birds. They're pretty beautiful, actually. Um, or pretty beautiful. Sorry, I dropped a T there, didn't I? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, my dad normally doesn't like it when I do that. But he's cool with it these <laughs> days. Um, right, so... <laughs> Next question is from uh, Francesco, and he says, Good afternoon, Mr. Thompson. How did he know it was the afternoon, I wonder? Well, he was probably guessing, but yeah. good afternoon, Francesco. Uh, a few months ago, Luke uploaded an episode about the Maya people and their prophecy about the end of the world. What, did you th- what do you think about them? What do you think about the Mayans and their you know, apparent prophecies about the end of the world? Well, I mean, I don't want to waste too much time on this one. Obviously, the prophecies of the end of the world are completely nuts, and, and anybody who believes in these things could need their head examining. But I think the Mayans actually have been misreported on this. I don't really think that uh, the, the whole Mayan culture was uh, was devoted to the idea the world was going to end at a certain time and a certain day. It's just the way it's been interpreted. Um, but, uh, I mean, obviously, these... these um, these bizarre um, beliefs are complete nonsense, and I'm saying that with total confidence. If we all d- get destroyed tomorrow, I shall retract that statement. Yeah, OK. If the world ends tomorrow, <laughs> yes. then you'll apologise. I'm sorry, yes. If the world ends tomorrow, <laughs> you'll apologise on Tuesday. How about that? OK, so uh, next one is from uh, Roman, uh, uh, Rom Hein. And uh, Rom says, hi, Luke's dad. Hi, Rom. Uh, I'd like to know, what are your thoughts about French people, and it can be on any topic. So what do you, what do you think of French people in general? Well, um, mm, here I am in France. Uh, the, uh, the gap between Britain and France is only a short piece of water. Uh, the French call it La Manche. We call it the English Channel. It's about 30 kilometres wide at its narrowest point. Not very far apart, but the cultures are pretty different, and, um, and our historical backgrounds are different. The French, um, I think everybody would agree, have got style. Um, they're known for, you know, fashion and, and, uh, art and being very creative. I think the French cuisine is quite rightly got a great reputation. You can get a fantastic meal in France and even in cheap little cafes and restaurants and little hotels. The food mm. is always good. Mm. And of course, the wine is good. Mm. And so, um, it, you know, the, the, they also, France also has a whole range of different uh, cultures and, and uh, scenery. Uh, it's a huge country. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I think that... Uh, what about the people, the, though, eh? Well, I think that, that in, Parisians are known to be just a little bit rude. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a pity. I think it's probably true. So you think... It's the, um, um, yeah, a lot of French people I speak to agree on that. I say to I say to Parisians, what are Parisian people really like? And they go, well, we're all really rude to each other, but they kind of they've just decided that that's how they're going to be with each other. But but when you meet French people in sort of more close terms, they're very nice, aren't they? Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, I think that the interesting difference the, the French have a bit of an issue with um, British uh, culture. Really? Partly because the, you know, the, the language um, is is a little bit intrusive, and you know, yeah. in, 
because it's become the international language. Also, they talk about the Anglo-Saxon way of doing things. I'm not quite sure what they mean by that, but I, I guess it's because they think it is um, too boring, too mm. pedestrian, too matter-of-fact, too pragmatic. Coldly too, pragmatic. Yes. Uh, so not enough passion. The head rules the heart as opposed to the heart rules the head. And they, the French, I think, celebrate the idea that they are, they are creative and slightly mysterious. So uh, and you, that's reflected in the cinema. And uh, I think that's vive la différence is all I can say. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. I, I think there's a bit of a change in France these days uh, in terms of their relationship to the UK. I mean, I noticed that they, they, they seem to think a lot of English things are cool these days. Like, you know, Marks and Spencers is very popular. And the, you see the British flag popping up mm. in some places. Like people go around wearing T-shirts with the British flag on it. Cool Britannia, it's called, yeah. this fashion thing. Yes, yeah. I know, Burberries are very fashionable and, and things that are archetypally English or indeed Scottish. Um, there's a bit of a trend uh, to have uh, Scottish, like, tartan in clothes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Just because we're cool. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, okay, Jairo asked a question, but we're going to come back to that. Instead, we're going to move on to Luciana's question. I think it's Luciana, or maybe Luciana, Luciana. And she said, um, ask him if he can speak Portuguese or any other language. Well, no. Next question. Actually, I can speak some French, but I don't speak it terribly well because I don't practice it. Um, but I mean, I, I could get by, and, and uh, I, I wish I did speak it better. But um, the, there is a my excuse is that wherever I go, everyone seems to speak fantastically good English. So um, it's really quite difficult to to you know force yourself to speak bad. Spanish or even bad Serbian mm. um, when everybody comes back at you with, with very good English. You know why they all speak good English now? Why? Because they've all been listening to Luke's English podcast. Oh, I see, of course, of course yes. Um, so no Portuguese then in your vocabulary? Sorry, no. No? All right. Um, sorry about that, Luciana. I have been to Portugal. I, 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 I did a training course in Porto, uh, which I like very much. I've been to Lisbon, um, and I've been to the... Uh, the south coast of Portugal, but not for any length of time, just, you know, just a few days and brush home again, okay. and not really had the chance to learn any Portuguese. All right. Um, next one's from Jarowina, and uh, the message goes, Hi, Mr. Thompson. What do you think about Spanish bullfighting? Spanish bullfighting. Mm, so it's uh, matadors, picadors, toreadors, anything with doors on the end of it. Um, bullfighting, it's, it's, a, a, it's been a very important part of Spanish culture for many, many years. It's considered to be not only a sort of a kind of sport, but an art form as well. And uh, it's a celebrated aspect of Spanish culture. But it, these days it's controversial because of the whole cruelty to animals debate. Yes. But you, um, you've you seen a few bullfights. Well, I've you? seen two bullfights, two six-bull bullfights in my time because I wanted to see what it was like. And, and I didn't like either of them at all. Really? And uh, I, I do understand that it is part of Spanish cultural tradition. But I, I don't know whether it... All the razzmatazz and the costumes and the ritual and everything else. Um, for me, it, it doesn't justify um, what I think is is cruelty to animals, and uh, I particularly disliked the picadors on horseback uh, making the bull ramming their lances into the bull to weaken it uh, mm. before the matador. 
uh, comes out. Uh, and and I, I think that um, if you look back at the relationship between human beings and animals over, over time, there has been a lot of cruelty to animals for entertainment. Yeah. Um, and in our country, it wasn't quite the same glamorous thing that bullfighting is. It was more the people's uh, sports of bear baiting, very popular in Shakespeare's what time. Bear, what was bear baiting? Oh, a bear uh, would be caught and would be tied, chained to a pole, and then they set dogs on it, and people bet on how many dogs it kills. So, yeah. uh, and and same with cockfighting, which is very popular working person's two, sport. Two male chickens fighting That's each right, other. to the death. Yeah. And um, and dog fighting, and uh, and dogs against badgers, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, I know bullfighting is is slightly different, but there's something I don't really dislike about it being in an arena. The bull is in a completely artificial situation. Yeah. And uh, I don't like it at all. And I all I can say is that if it stopped tomorrow, I don't think the world would be a worse place. Okay, there you go. You laid your cards quite uh, confidently on the table with that one. Um, it's an interesting debate, isn't it, bullfighting? I wonder what's going to happen to it. Um, uh, do leave your comments uh, on the podcast if, you're, uh, if you have something to say about any of these topics. Let's move on to uh, the, the next uh, question, which uh, is written in uh, Cyrillic. No, the, well, the name is in Cyrillic, which is the sort of Russian alphabet. I can't read it. Can you read Cyrillic? Oh, no, with great difficulty. No. Well, um, anyway, the name is in Cyrillic, so I'm afraid I don't know how to pronounce your name, whoever you are. But uh, the question is, Hi, Luke. Please ask him what he thinks about life in the UK. What are the best and worst things? You've already talked a little bit about life in the UK, but can you just pick out two of the best things and two of the worst things. Well, two two good things and two bad things about life. All right, in I'll, the UK. I'll pick two, just like that. Uh, first of all, I do like uh, the variety of scenery in the UK. Scenery, the landscape. Yes, the landscape, because um, the, these islands have a very interesting geology, and therefore there's a huge contrast in the landscapes from Scotland's uh, wonderful, wild, uh, rounded, ice-scraped mountains to the cliffs on the west coast of Wales and Ireland, uh, to the luscious uh, green lands in central England. And then, of course, the, the wonderful landscape of Yorkshire, which is the best of them all. Really? Uh, but uh, it is a huge variety of landscapes. And uh, I know sometimes people rush to London. They don't have much time. They see Buckingham Palace. They see the Houses of Parliament. There's Big Ben. Yes, I've done Britain. Well, you haven't. Uh, it'd be great if you could spend just a little bit longer to go to Scotland or north of England or maybe down to the southwest to Cornwall. And not just Edinburgh and Scotland, but go to the countryside, go to the highlands if yeah. you can. It's amazing so landscape. It, there's loads of wonderful coast, of course, that, because it's an island. It has coast all the way around. Yeah. But, the, but the, the, there's some beautiful scenery in Britain. Uh, the second thing I, I would advocate about the UK is, uh, from a personal point of view, is the broadcasting. Uh -huh. Because, I mean, I did work for the BBC for a long time. It does have a reputation, uh, which I think is correct. I was proud to work for this organisation. Uh, and, and, of course, I'm mentioning it, not just the BBC, but television and radio in general in the UK. Yeah. is something that you realise how good it is when you go to other places. And I've been to lots and lots of other places. And you suddenly realise that we're very lucky in the UK that we have so many programmes which are innovative, different um, high quality, um, challenging, not formulaic, 
Uh, only, only in Britain could you could you have programs like Monty Python's Flying Circus. Nobody else could possibly see why you would do that. Yeah. And and it's not just the slightly slightly crazy programs. That there is a whole range of programs which have done very very well because the people who work in this industry have a absolute dedication to excellence. It must be perfect. And it's a, it's a tradition now that our broadcasting is very high quality and very interesting. So I think that's one of the reasons I'm, I like living in the UK, because I can enjoy television and radio. Uh, B- very B- high quality. BBC TV. I love the, the BBC documentaries about music. And on BBC Four, which is one of the TV stations in England, uh, you regularly have really fantastic, very in-depth documentaries about different genres of music or you know for example there was i've seen documentaries about um let's see um blues guitarists jazz musicians from america there was a there was a documentary uh, about jeff lynn who was the uh, songwriter in elo the electric light orchestra and he worked with george harrison and stuff and uh, you, you can learn so much from watching these programmes. I, f- I sound like I'm selling the BBC at this point. I don't work for the BBC. Um, I don't have any kind of interest in them. I just think they're very good. Um, a lot of it's on. A lot of those documentaries are on YouTube now. Uh, yes, I think the Jeff Lynne was it a long one, isn't it? It's yeah. a long documentary, two hours or something. Um, but of course, he was an ex- extraordinary producer, and um, we, Luke, uh, was brought up uh, just living near Birmingham, and in the middle of England. And Jeff Lynne is one of a, a bunch of musicians who came from Birmingham, and um, he's uh, he's a very very talented guy. Yeah, Jeff Lynne. Um, check him out on YouTube Electric Light Orchestra ELO have a look he's also worked with the Beatles as I said uh, Free as a Bird which was the Beatles kind of comeback single that they released in 1996 Um, that's another story ladies and gentlemen so uh, there you go those are two of your favourite things what are two of the bad things though? well um, I I think in in the in the towns, I get very fed up that people drop litter on the floor. Littering, littering. Why do people drop things on the ground? It's it's you know I don't want to live in a rubbish dump, and I think the world is divided between those who drop litter and those who pick it up. Yeah. And um, so yeah, so so when I become president of everything, anybody who drops litter will be either sent to jail for life. Or they'll have their hands cut off, and then they'll never do it again. But if, if they have their hands cut off, then they won't be able to pick up litter. Yeah, good point. Maybe maybe I'll just commute that to life sentence of picking up litter. What you should do is you should chop their hands off. We're joking, by the way. <laughs> what you should do is you should chop their hands off and have their hands replaced by those, you know, those kind of like um, metal things that grab, like like mm. things that. Uh, Street cleaners used to pick up litter from the floor. It's like a, le- a metal arm with like two grabbing fingers on the end. You should just replace their hands with those, and then all they would be able to do is pick up litter. Okay, good plan. Well, we'll, we'll go for that. Okay. Um, and um, otherwise, um, what don't I like about Britain? I don't like the, 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 the class system that still exists. It's still there. Um, it's not as rigid as it was, but it is still there. And and I don't like the fact that so many people from privileged, rich backgrounds who went to expensive private schools get themselves into a position of power and influence, uh, including uh, in our present government, where mm. a lot of them are from this background. And you look at it and say, this is the year 2013. How have we come to this, that, that this 
David Cameron government is full of rich toffs and uh, the difference between the poorest people and the richest people in our country just continues to get wider and wider and wider. And this is something I really dislike. I would like a fairer society and I would like to think that this London social group of privileged people shouldn't have as much influence as they have. These are the people who went to Eton School. Yes, Eton is the favourite one, but there are other expensive private schools. And they, yeah. they are from families where they believe they have a right to 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 be the governing class. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think they do have the right. Okay. All right. Bit of politics there, ladies and gentlemen. Let's uh let's move on to a question from Claudio. And he says, um, oh, all right. Uh, according to your dad, what are the most common stereotypes about Italy and Italians? So, just to be clear, ladies and gentlemen, we're now going to talk a little bit about the stereotypes for Italians, not my dad's actual opinion. Let's start with the commonly held stereotypes of Italian people. Well, I bet Claudio knows what the stereotypes of Italians are. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, the Italians uh, like the good life, la bella vita, and um, uh, they have a reputation for not working very hard. Yeah, really? Well, no, but obviously, if you live in, in a beautiful country like Italy, you have to have time to yeah. enjoy the good life, and uh, maybe sitting in a cafe uh, is, is a better thing to do than going to work. But the, that's a stereotype. Another stereotype, of course, is they're oversexed. They like sex. Well, oversex means that they think about it all the time, and uh, we know very well that, that you know Italian men um, think about it all the time. Yeah, but well, come well, on, in fact, men think about it all the time. Don't I think have... Italian men think about it all all the time, like even, even more... when they're unconscious. So men, wait a minute, men think about <laughs> sex all the time, but Italian men think about sex like more than they they think about sex twenty five hours a day. Maybe you have to admit it's a stereotype as well. It's a stereotype. It? Okay, fine. And and but the other thing, of course, is they're they're glamorous, mm. uh, very stylish. They like to dress up and show off, um, and uh, and you know parade about the place. And I think there's also a bit of a stereotype about still about the mafia running Italy. Yeah, really. Just a little bit, I think. So Silvio Berlusconi hasn't helped. In uh, his uh, his image of Italy, I mean, what a terrible shame that he's been such a prominent position and the rest of the world think he's a disreputable clown, but uh, people in Italy keep on voting for him. But um, as we record this, at this moment, a new Italian government is being sworn in. Yeah. And um, he's, he's not a minister, though, of course, his party is in a prominent position in this coalition. Um, but I think it looks good at the moment. So fingers crossed that this is a, a coalition uh, with all the, with the main parties working together uh, to try to solve Italy's economic problems, and they have to do something about it. Yeah. So I, I, I very, very much hope that it will be a good start for Italy to climb out of this difficult period it's been through in the last two or three years. Yeah, so, you know, good luck, Italy. Despite the stereotype that they don't work hard, I know for a fact that... Uh, you know, many Italian people work hard, work harder now than they've ever done before. Of course. So it's not yes. really true that they don't work hard. They work extremely hard. I know that they do because I've seen it actually happen in front of my face with uh, Italian students that I've met. They've got a good sense of humour as well, the Italians. They're yes. funny, funny people. Right, um, Claudio also asks you about Margaret Thatcher, but we're not going to go into that because, I mean, we've, we, so much has been said about Margaret Thatcher in the last few weeks. 
And also, I plan to do a podcast just about Margaret Thatcher, in which I deal with all of the different aspects of, you know, Margaret Thatcher, the person, the myth, the politician, and so on. Uh, but he does ask you, what's your favourite food? And that ties in quite nicely with a question from Anna uh, Kazan, who's from Russia. And Anna says, please ask your dad what his favourite dishes are. What does he think about English food? What do you have for breakfast, lunch and dinner, etc.? And do you have high tea? So that's actually four <laughs> questions in one, Anna. Uh, how did you manage to squeeze four questions into one? I don't know. But um, so um, let's start with um, breakfast. Well, what... Breakfast. I mean, uh, like a lot of people in, in uh, our country, I like nice, freshly squeezed orange juice for breakfast in the morning. I don't really feel as though the day has started. I've squeezed my oranges and had that. Um, I do like some nice freshly um, uh, baked bread as toasted with a little bit of honey on it or sometimes a, a little bit of, of jam. Yeah. And I quite often have a grilled tomato. Grilled tomato on grilled toast? Grilled tomato on toast because uh, you know that tomato is good for you, especially when it's been cooked. It's it is very good for you. Yeah, right? uh, yeah it's got anti-carcinogenics in it. Yeah. It's got uh, all sorts of good things in it. So it's a, it's a... No, that kind of thing. Grilled tomato on Grilled toast. Grilled tomato on toast. Maybe a bit of honey, freshly squeezed orange juice. There you go. A, a bit Sometimes of... I have a yogurt. Yeah. Good for you. And on a Sunday, especially if we have some visitors around, sometimes we have an English breakfast as a kind of a brunch. Yes. And that I, Luke and his brother James will know this because if they're with us for the weekend, we normally will we'll have a, a late Sunday breakfast, which will be fried egg, bacon, mushrooms. Uh, a little bit of tomato. Yeah. Um, the the English breakfast, and and it is a nice thing to have, but you shouldn't have it too often, otherwise it's a bit unhealthy. I think a lot of people think that um, the English, lots of people think that English people eat a full English breakfast every day, but that's ridiculous because if you did that, you'd probably you'd, you'd die after <laughs> no, about it's, eight it's a days. Treat. It's an occasional treat. Yeah, so we have, you know, normal breakfast, toast and uh, orange juice, like most other people, but uh, full English breakfast at the weekend or, on a, you know, when, when you've got friends or family with you or something like that. Um, so what about high tea? Um, now, wait, wait a minute. High tea means when you gather round um, in the late afternoon and you eat sandwiches and maybe have some cake or something and you drink tea, um, served in rather nice, t uh, using a rather nice tea set. That's cups and saucers, uh, a teapot, and a milk jug. You know that kind of stereotype image. Do you drink high tea? Do you sit there going, mm, "Lovely tea," and it's all very English? Do you do that? No, certainly not. And I, and I don't think very many people will. But it it it, it used to be certainly used to be um, a middle class uh, way of life. My grandmother who lived up in Yorkshire, she used to always produce a, a little trolley. A little trolley would come along the hall and come into the living room, a little trolley, yeah. at about uh, half past four or five o'clock. Yeah. And there would be a plate of ham sandwiches and cucumber sandwiches and the and a couple of cakes, maybe an eclair, and uh, a pot of tea. Uh, we had a very nice china tea service with flowers on the cups. Well, that's a very old-fashioned idea now. And, of course... You know, we don't. Um, mm. If you in the afternoon, you might have a coffee and a biscuit, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, I think it's more common. Uh, uh, to be honest, English people do drink tea a lot, but we don't really drink it. You don't have high tea anymore. 
um, except maybe very posh people or, you know, the royal family or something. But most English people will drink a lot of tea, but they drink it out of a, a mug, you know, like a coffee mug. And you tend to brew it by just putting the tea bag directly into the mug. Um, and uh, you have some milk in it and you ha- maybe have a few biscuits. I would not recommend the tea bag and the bergen mug. I'm sorry. I think you've no. got to invest in a teapot. Yeah. Uh, that's the only way tea really tastes properly. As for favourite food, gosh, all I'd say is that I've always liked chicken. Yeah. Now, chicken is an unglamorous food. It's not a very expensive food. Um, uh, but I think it's underrated. I think you can do chicken in so many different ways and it's always good and it's very healthy good for you so i would say i like chicken and the other thing of course is that there's traditionally british things that i quite like and um particularly in the north of england and the great traditional foods are what we call game they are they are foods which have been from wild creatures wild animals you know venison for example we, we are overrun with deer in britain and so there's quite a lot of venison around now as people have to cull the deer on their farms or estates and uh, venison is fantastically good for you, and it's uh, so I would recommend it. Okay, would you call a deer with no eyes? Uh, no idea. No idea. That's right. That's a joke, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I picked up on it pretty fast. I you thought you that did. wasn't too bad. Well done. What, okay. what, what, what do you call a deer with no eyes and no legs? Uh, tell me. Still no idea. Oh, very good. That, uh, That's actually not a very nice joke, is it? Well, because now you're thinking of a deer with no eyes and <laughs> no know, legs, but it's it's just it's, yeah. it's just a, a surreal image. It's not meant to be. A, yeah, it's not meant to be cruel against animals or anything. It's just a joke. I'm sorry. Is deer more expensive than than uh, lamb or sheep meat? Is deer meat like venison more expensive mm-hmm. than than lamb or? I think sheep? you'll find that venison is deer, but mutton is sheep. <laughs> that was that was worse than my uh, my no idea joke. Because no one understood that. No, they I won't think, understand I think it. Let's move on. Thirty-five percent of my <laughs> listeners understood my joke, but none of them understood your joke. I'm going to have to explain that. Somehow. Don't. Okay, I, I plan to do an episode all about jokes. I've been saying that for years, and I'll do it eventually, and it'll be awful because it won't be funny. Because I'll say all these jokes, and then people will say, "What? That's not funny." And then I'll explain them, and then they'll understand it, but they still won't find it funny. Anyway, next. Um, we're not going to be able to answer all these questions, ladies and gentlemen, because we've got uh, we've got dinner um, coming. Five left. We've only got, we've only got a few minutes left, and then we've got to go and have dinner. Um, so let's see. Um, 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 okay, Ubi. Um, okay, Mariana Ramirez asked several questions, but one of them was: uh, Do you have any funny anecdotes or stories? of me and my brother when we were children well yes i i can i can think of a few luke uh, was was um his older brother used to look after luke because um you know that's what older brothers are supposed to do and when luke was little um uh he uh, he used to be very very quiet now now it's difficult to imagine isn't it listeners that luke was very very quiet little boy but his older brother james was very very talkative and he would talk and talk and talk. And Luke obviously didn't feel that he could compete with this when he was smaller. So he used to follow James around like a, like a little dog. And when anyone asked dog. Luke to say something, <laughs> he would say, James, say it. He would ask for James to speak on his behalf. Yeah. And we'd start wondering whether he'd ever start talking properly. Then suddenly, poof, 
he started talking. Um, but uh, the other, so that's one thing. He used to be very quiet uh, and ask James to speak for him. But you know why I did that? Of course, because James, you know, was so talkative that if I started, if I opened my <laughs> mouth, he would just interrupt me within the first few minutes. So I just would think, oh well, someone asked me a question. I'll well, just let James answer because he's only going to interrupt me anyway. Um, and it's only now, now that I have my own, own podcast that I'm able to catch up and actually do some talking now. And the other thing was Maybe that too when, much. when when Luke was, was small and um, he he obviously wanted to get away really? from the, yeah, the family because you used to make a kind of escape bids every yeah. now and then. Try and escape. You had a terrible habit of suddenly taking off and running. Really? As fast as you could run. I would just run away? <laughs> you just run. There was one occasion when we were, we got to a beach in France and we parked the car and we got you and James out of the car and turned our back for a moment and you'd just gone. Just, Where's just, Luke? Just, just he, I mean, he was there a second ago and now he's gone. And it was very worrying. And we kind of zoomed out in all directions one going one way, one going the other way. Where the heck is he? And your uncle Nick said, "There he is." And there was this tiny little figure running like heck down the beach in the as fast as he could in the distance. <laughs> uh, so we had to run after and catch you. And uh, I mean, it wasn't the only time you you went for a, a run. I mean, maybe you'd been in the car for so long that you couldn't wait to start running. I think what it was was that uh, you know once I learned how to walk and run, I just thought, right, screw this, I'm out of here. <laughs> screw, screw you, losers. I'm going to the beach. See ya. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe it was just because I'd been in the car and I had all this energy, and I was like, "I've got so much energy, just just run, just run for it." I don't care which direction. I'm just running because of too much. But energy. it meant we had to keep a very close eye on you because if you kind of just turned away for a second, he'd be he'd be off. Yeah, I'm running. There to, goes again. I'm going to run to Japan, <laughs> and now I'm going to run to France. Oh dear, I'm still doing it. Um, okay, right. So um, there you go, Mariana. Hope you hope you enjoyed those stories. Um, and so we're coming to an end here. I think we're not going. As I said, we can't answer all of these questions. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. It's, we're too popular. Dan. The podcast is too popular. Um, Ubi Ratan Silva says, "Why does two plus two equal four? Why would two plus two is four? Why?" I don't know what kind of a question that is. It just is. It just does. If you have two two cakes and somebody gives you two more cakes, you've got four cakes. Ubi, don't you understand that? Yeah, but um, but I mean, why though? If you have two, why isn't it two? Why, for example, isn't it that when you put two with something, why doesn't like another one arrive? I don't uh, know. I'm sorry, you're struggling. Look, it, the answer to this question is because it just does. Okay, there you go. That sounds to me like that's what teachers say when they don't know the answer. They just they just go, uh, but just because it is, all right. Next question. Don't be don't be too clever, Ubi Ratan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two cakes plus another two cakes is four cakes, isn't it? But what happens if you eat one? Uh, well, you've just minused one cake. Right. Okay. I think I've eaten it. I haven't minused it. I've just eaten it. <laughs> what about two hamburgers? Uh, plus two Americans, what do you get? Uh, you get um, uh, two Americans. I think that's yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, that was a joke, ladies and gentlemen. Well, well done for not really getting it. It wasn't very funny, was it? So maybe someone laughed. There might be someone on public transport just t- trying not to laugh 
or, or someone on public transport just trying not to stop listening to this. Well, it's it, it, we've nearly finished. And I'm going to go back to Jairo's question from earlier on. And he asked about, well, he, he mentions Oprah Winfrey. Now, Oprah Winfrey is the famous American chat show host. And she would um, end her interviews typically with a question. Uh, and the question is, what are you sure of? What are you certain about? What are you sure of? There are so many things to be uncertain about in the world. What's going to happen in the future? Who's going to win the UEFA Champions League? Um, were the Mayans right? We don't really know. Uh, you know, we can't be sure. But what are you certain of? Well, I am certain of at least one thing. What's that? That is that Luke's English podcast is the best way of learning real spoken English as it is spoken in the UK and entertaining to boot. I will also add, I'm pretty sure that love is all you need. Yeah. Thank you very much. I think on that romantic note, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. And Dad, um, are you? Would you like to join me in a in a bye 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 bye? I can. Yes, okay. that's the way you always finish, isn't that's it? That's how I always finish these episodes. Um, so, thanks again for listening to Luke's English podcast. Um, stay tuned for more episodes in the near future. But for now. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, you can visit teacherluke.wordpress.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.